Creator God, we give you humble thanks and we express our amazement that you are mindful of us and that you care for each of us. Such extraordinary love points only to your greatness. Lord God, keep us in your grace so that we may grow into your love and learn to live in that space just below the angels. In Christ's name we pray. So my mother always described that day as the worst day of her life. That day was the day that my mother's mother moved back in with my mother's father and took her along. My mother had been enjoying life with just her mother, and I understand why, because her mother, whose actual name I don't know, was always called by the grandchildren, Other Mom. And that's her name, so I don't use Other Mom. One of the most nurturing, kind, generous, loving people I've ever met was taking care of my mom as a solo child in a small bungalow in Amarillo, Texas, while other mama taught school and mom enjoyed the attention undivided of her mother and grandmother. But then she got taken back to her dad. Now, her dad, known to me as Daddy D, known to people more locally as Dr. D. Foster, was a legend in the small town of the Texas Panhandle called Hale Center. He was the town doctor, the one town doctor. Everybody who was born, he did it. Every bone that broke, he set it. Every surgery, he did it. Everyone who passed on, he walked them through. He did house calls. He got paid in chickens by dirt farmers. He was a legendary small town country doctor. Now this public appearance was a contradiction with his domestic life. And it made that contradiction even more painful. Because at home he was a tyrant. He was cruel. He was a drinker, a smoker, and a serial philanderer in a Southern Baptist town. My grandmother, little mama, stood six foot two in flat shoes. <laughs> she could look Daddy D right in the eye. But Daddy D had the gift of making her feel small and making her feel bad about herself. And he made a miserable house to live in. So that was the worst day of my mom's life. And even when I was a young child, and we visited that little ranch house in Hale Center, Texas, I could feel my beloved grandmother's misery, the heaviness of her hurt on her broad shoulders, vividly as 
So this is all a way to say that I have some problems with our gospel today. <laughs> and I'm going to trouble this story a little bit, and it's going to trouble me, and we're going to get someplace with it. And it's going to be complicated, so I ask you to bear with me. It's really my observation, and I think it's a valid one, that the Episcopal Church has come to a place today where we are able to embrace divorce in a way that Jesus did not. We can see that when a marriage covenant breaks down so severely that against all efforts it can be recovered, we can see that the loving response may be the end of that marriage bond and divorce. That that might be the right loving care for everyone concerned. And so, pastorally, we wrap couples up in care as they make that turn. We don't judge them. We assist them. This is where we are pastorally today in relationship to divorce. We can see that it demands respect. We can see that it is often a blessing that displays God's liberating and life-giving love in a way that perhaps Jesus could not see according to this passage. Now this passage has been worked with by a lot of people, and I spent a lot of time in all the arguments this week, and I could teach an adult forum about an hour long on all the ways to worm around what this passage says. There's a whole school that tries to make Jesus a first century feminist, who somehow is making men and women equal in this story, even though under Roman law, they were already such. I don't really buy all these words. I think we have to face it at all. Jesus is approached with the question of the legality of divorce, and under Mosaic law, he does not contest it. He just says it's given to you for your hardness of heart. Then he changes the frame in a very rabbinical argument move and says, well, that's the Mosaic covenant. What about the covenant of creation? And according to Jesus, in the covenant of creation, we're meant for lifelong marriage or bondage together. And then he goes into the adultery discussion in private with his disciples, where yes, men and women are treated equally, but the results aren't so good. Because if you remarry, you're an adulterer. So this leads us to a very uncomfortable passage. And as someone once said to the great Lutheran pastor, David, preacher David Lowe, a woman who had been divorced, every time she heard this passage, she felt like a garbage can had been dumped on her at church. She came all ready to be renewed and revived and worshipped. And here comes this gospel like a bunch of garbage to make her feel ashamed and bad about herself. That's why I feel like we have to depart from it to some degree and be pastors who recognize that divorce demands respect and blessing and care and may be the right way to go for someone's flourishing and for the health of the whole family. Now saying that, and this is where it gets a little more complicated, I also want to, as I respect divorce, celebrate lifelong union. Now, I trust that this congregation can do complex
we respect that some marriages are better than good. We still can, alongside that, celebrate God's intention that we have companionship in the long term. And that's the whole move that Jesus makes back to the Genesis stories. The only time in the Genesis story that God says something is not good, it's not good that the first human is alone. So that's how profoundly God believes that we need companionship. We need someone to express that delight and love in us. That is part and parcel of God's delight and love with us. And another bit of trouble I'm going to throw out in this passage is that same Genesis passage has been used oppressively to exclude gay and lesbian and transgender people from the benefits of married life and lifelong companionship blessed by the church. Once again, I think we're in a new place in the Episcopal Church where those unions are as blessed as heterosexual unions. Whether it's male and male, female and female, or female and male, we can see God's love in these relationships and celebrate them and wish them the same flourishing over time. Really, indeed, when I sit down and do premarital counseling with any couple whatsoever, I always move from the assumption that they are heading towards lifelong union. I don't do premarital counseling with an escape clause. <laughs> you know, you'll say these vows of God that you can bail out at any time. It's not what I do. I try to hold out to them the promise of this long-term over time, and these people in their 20s who are being married right now, actually, they might be married for 60 or 70 years. They've got a really good chance of that. So I say to them, think about how your mind, body, and spirit will change in 70 years. And I don't do that lightly. I'm trying to get them to reflect on this gift of love that they share. Does it have the oomph? Does it have the depth to stay devoted, stay adoring, stay committed through all of those ups and downs that are better for the worse, the richer, the poorer, the sickness and health? Aren't our wedding vows very realistic? Do you have the gift of love that's going to see you through that journey? Because for me, this whole depth until death do us part thing is not a legal trap, which is how it's sometimes used, that we've got to stay together no matter how miserable and bitter you are, how painful and hurtful the marriage is. You've got to stay together until death do you part. That's the legal reading. For me, the spiritual reading, the reading I use, is do you have the love in your relationship to contemplate on your happiest day the worst thing you can imagine? Can you imagine losing your beloved and having the love to go through that horrible experience? That's taking a spiritual sounding. That's looking at the spiritual promise of love, not the legalism. And marriages can and do 
They can do that so beautifully. They can express the faithfulness of God through better for worse, for richer for poor, in sickness and health, till death do us part. And be that gift of loving presence that we all so yearn for. My greatest example of this has been my own parents. They always told me, and my sisters, Jared, Dallas Kelly, marriage is hard work. God worked on it every day. And they did, boy, did they work on it. And they're married 60 years. And I celebrate that. And the present time and mom is drifting away with dementia. And she's staying in a nursing home room. My dad is staying in their old apartment. But every day, my dad at 7.30 a.m. is in her room. And he is in her room until 7.30 p.m. He is supervising her care. He is holding elaborate conversations that are pretty much one-sided. He is showing her pictures of her life together. He is playing her music that she loves. She is He's defending her against medical care. He is loving her in the worst time. This could be the time I call the worst. But this is the time that she's being loved so faithful, so generous, so sacrificial, that all I can see is God's presence. So let us hold out that love as the promising gift that God offers us in so many estates of life. Through friendship, through companionship, through partnership, through community. Yes, through marriage as well. But that is how deeply we are loved. And I fundamentally believe that God believes that we deserve that level of love and need that level of love to flower into the human beings God created us to be. Amen.